Hello, I'm Annie Shaw, and for this episode of Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, I'm speaking with Paul Donovan, the Chief Economist of UBS Global Wealth Management, and Amitha Rahman, a contemporary art collector who sits on the Board of Trustees for Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture, is a member of MoMA's Black Arts Council, and is the founding chair of Brooklyn Museum's Young Leadership Council. This episode accompanies the release of the Art Market Report, a survey of global collecting in 2022, co-published by Art Basel and UBS, and authored by Claire McAndrew. In it, we look at how the political and economic instability of 2022 is impacting the art buying habits of high net worth collectors, whether sustainability and diversity are just buzzwords, or whether the market is actually adapting to the times, and what the next six months to a year might look like. So, Paul, if I could begin with you, we began 2022 with some degree of optimism in the art market, didn't we, after rebounding from the pandemic better than expected last year. But the first half of 2022 has thrown up its own set of challenges. We're seeing huge political and economic instability across the globe, the war in Ukraine, spiking inflation rates, supply issues and a cost of living crisis. But there's often this idea that the very top of the wealth spectrum, at least, is insulated from these problems. How much does that continue to be true? I think it's it's mixed. So the horrors of war affect everybody in terms of confidence, in terms of direct effects. I mean, that's something which is pretty universal, uh, particularly in the social media age, I would argue. And so we've had uh, a negative shock from what is the first European war of the Twitter era. When we look at the cost of living, I think it is fair to say that whilst higher income groups are affected by the cost of living increase, it is not as severe an impact as it is for lower income groups. Because what we have been seeing is an increase essentially in food and fuel prices, and those are disproportionately significant for lower income groups. So that gives some degree of insulation. We've also had some common trends and some supportive trends over the course of this year where both higher income groups and lower income groups have been determined to have fun, to celebrate the lessening of the pandemic risk by going out and enjoying themselves, spending on services, leisure, travel. That's certainly been a factor that we've been seeing, which is across the spectrum. Indeed. The pool of potential buyers hasn't shrunk, has it? I mean, in fact, there was a large increase in billionaire wealth throughout the pandemic, and that has slightly tailed off in the beginning of 2022, according to Forbes. I mean, do you expect billionaire wealth to grow in the next six months to a year? And how important is that group for the health of the overall art market? I think to be talking about significant growth is probably fairly unlikely now. Financial markets have been obviously particularly volatile in the last few months. We are seeing more aggressive moves from central banks to tighten interest rates. And so that has added to the volatility of financial markets. We've also got a lot of structural change in the economy, which is starting to create anomalies in other asset classes. So a classic example of this is the real estate sector. And obviously, real estate is an important asset for many high net worth individuals. 
But we're now starting to see people questioning, do they need office space? Do they need larger residential real estate? Where should the residential real estate be? All of these questions are coming up. So we've added volatility into the mix. I would say that we will probably see a stabilization of wealth levels over the next six months and probably over the next 12 months. There may be a little bit of upside on a 12-month view as the economies settle down again and we start to get back on to the more normal economic cycle. Another thing that we're all facing is soaring inflation. Contrary to logic, perhaps, blue chip art is often seen as a good hedge against inflation. It's a good alternative asset to invest your cash in. So is inflation actually encouraging art buying, do you think, or is it dampening appetite among collectors? Well, as a general rule, we would caution against regarding art as an investment. Art is a passion. It's not something that should be considered an investment, particularly considering the liquidity of the market and so forth. I think that as with any real physical asset, there is a degree of insurance against inflation in certain circumstances. But of course, the counterpoint to this is that if people are choosing between Picasso and pizza to oversimplify the situation, you're always going to prioritize food. If your food bill, your fuel bill is going up, that's where you're going to divert your income to. You have less money to spend on other aspects, particularly if you have drawn down on your savings, you will have less money to spend elsewhere. So I think were we to see a persistent period of inflation, then you would perhaps see some shifts in potential buyers and the composition. Well, I'd like to speak to an art collector with us now. Amitha, if I can bring you in here. You've been collecting with your husband for eight years now. Has the current economic and political climate had an impact on how you spend your money, particularly when it comes to your art collection? Yes, I think that the uncertainty in the current economic climate has definitely made us more intentional about our spending. We never really considered ourselves to be impulse buyers, but now we're even less likely to make an impulse purchase, whether it's in an art context or not. So we're always on the lookout for great opportunities. And we have made some acquisitions for artists that have been on our radar for a while, even pre-pandemic. But it was definitely not a spur of the moment thing. It was just kind of the right time and the right place. Something the report looks at in detail is the global import and export of art, which showed a drop naturally in 2020, and both have recovered strongly in 2021 and show signs of continued growth in 2022. But I'd like to drill down into one area, which is the impact of Brexit. And I think one of the most striking developments that the report identifies is the drop in art imports to the UK since Brexit. And just to sort of give you some of the figures, in 2000, the UK accounted for 24% of global art imports in 2020. 2010, that figure was 30%. In 2016, the year of Brexit, of course, it was 16%. And in 2021, when we first felt the impact of Brexit, the UK's share of global art imports had plunged to just 7%. Paul, can you just tell us a bit about the story behind these figures? I mean, how much of it is down to the shock of Brexit? I think we have to be quite cautious about how much emphasis we put on Brexit. Because remember, of course, the UK had a series of lockdowns in 21. We didn't just have the one, we had several lockdowns in 21. And so with that, you had a natural disruption that people just weren't traveling to the UK. People in the UK themselves were not going out to galleries and exhibitions for longer periods of time than was the case, say, in some parts of Asia or the United States. 
just to give two instances. And also the lockdowns in the UK tended to be a little bit more dramatic than some of the lockdowns that were taking place in Europe. And I think that that pattern probably led to quite a lot of disruption to what is a market that's fairly dependent on global travel and issues like that. Because in 2021, there was a sense, and you can see this in hotel numbers, and you can see this in air travel numbers, People just weren't really confident about coming into the UK because there could be a lockdown and you might not be able to get out again. That was the sort of the sense. So I think that we really need to be sort of assessing the 22 and the 23 numbers to get a better idea about what's actually been going on with the Brexit and just how disruptive this is, because it's going to be in 22 and 23 that we return to a more normalized market, a more normalized trading environment overall. Now, undoubtedly, what Brexit has done is create some frictions in the trade process. You've got more paperwork to fill in. It's a lot more hassle. What we have tended to find is that if the business is worth doing, you just do the paperwork. And I think obviously the art business is a business that's worth doing. There may be one or two small dealers who don't have much of a presence in the UK who may decide to give up. But I think given the pool of expertise that exists in the UK market, the specialist labor skills, et cetera, et cetera, you will probably carry on and just grit your teeth and spend another couple of hours filling in forms. Conversely, France's market has grown slightly from 9 to 11%. It's a small increase, but one nonetheless. Do you think it will continue to expand? And is it doing so at the cost of London's market? Well, again, I think if we look at what happened immediately around the pandemic, the French restrictions were not as draconian as with the UK. And of course, France had more open borders with certain parts of Europe, at least for longer periods over the course of 2021. But that's not necessarily taking business from London. That's just that you can do business, period, in France and not in the UK. So I'm not sure that that Paris is necessarily going to be taking over from London. I don't think that's necessarily a conclusion that we can draw. As I say, I think we need a lot of things to stabilize, a lot of things to settle down. At the end of the day, when we're talking about something like the art market, it is going to depend on where the talent is in terms of where the expertise, where the gallery expertise is, and then sort of ancillary issues like, is this a place that people want to go and visit? Because the art experience is a very broad experience. It includes travel, it includes the social events and so on and so forth. So there's a clustering effect which favors the London market in geographical terms. We see this in a lot of different industries where you get a cluster of expertise and the sort of the gravitational pull keeps that in. I don't think that Brexit is going to change that and shift the axis down to Paris. I may be wrong, but I don't get a sense that that's where we're going at this stage. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. From the same partnership that brings you the Intersections podcast comes the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. Out now, this year's edition shows how the global art market staged a phenomenal comeback in 2021. Find out how online sales fared as crowds returned to galleries and auction houses, and how changing global wealth impacted collecting trends. Get your copy now at UBS.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. 
If we could turn to one of the sort of threads throughout this report, which is sustainability and to a lesser extent diversity. They've become buzzwords in the market in recent years, but the report suggests there has been little actual progress in both of these areas. There has been some progress in terms of female artists. In 2018, female artists accounted for 33% of collections. Today, that figure is 42%. Amitha, you and your husband are building a collection that's committed to artists of colour and female artists. Was your decision to focus on these groups influenced by the wider conversations that have been happening in recent years around the need for greater diversity in the art world? Well, actually, as a woman of color from Kansas City, Missouri, originally, which is a place that's not really well known for being very diverse, I've always been drawn to these artists because of the narratives that they represent in their work. And that's just what resonates with me personally, probably because of my identity. We kind of naturally gravitated towards these groups before maybe there was a larger market trend. And that's really a function of the company that we keep and the community that we've built in New York, which through my involvement with the Brooklyn Museum, I've become very close with Carmen Ermo, who's a feminist curator there, or my involvement with the Black Arts Council at MoMA for many years. I've had the opportunity to learn from other really established collectors like Bernard Lumpkin or the curator Larry Osei-Mensa. So I think if anything, they are really who has helped inform our taste and preferences. And the more recent focus on these groups from institutions has just allowed us more access points to learn about these artists on a deeper level. During the pandemic, more institutions were doing virtual studio visits and hosting virtual panels. So I think if anything, it was just an opportunity to learn more about these artists in a deeper way. And you mentioned your first purchase was a Pipilotti Reist piece. Is that right? Could you describe to us how you came to purchase that and that sort of journey? Actually, that was um, one of the purchases that we made during the pandemic. The first acquisition I made was at Art Basel Miami Beach, and it was a Mary Beth Edelson work. And I think that was a really big influence. It's funny because it's scale of the work. It's not such a large work. Um, It was the first acquisition that I made for the collection. And yet that is the work that's been traveling more than it's been in our home. It just got back from, I think, three different museum shows, and it's about to go out to Germany next month to two more shows. So... It's kind of surprising. It's small, but mighty. <laughs> and an astute purchase. Just to take us back to the report, the report suggests that rather than the gender bias existing in the mind of the collector, it's in fact the availability of female artists' works in galleries and auction houses, which influences the composition of collections. I mean, I mean would you agree with that sentiment? Does that ring true for you? I think I would agree with that. For us, I would say it's not necessarily that we have a checklist of female artists that we want to acquire. It's more that we are pretty pragmatic in our approach and we want to acquire the best works by the artists that we think are the most important in art history for the best value. Even though that's changing at the very high end of the market more recently, I think in general, I'm still pretty shocked by the relatively accessible prices for female artists who I think are hugely important when you compare their prices to their male counterparts if they're apples to apples. So I think perhaps that's what other collectors are kind of picking up on. And maybe that's what's changing the composition of their collections. And they're kind of prioritizing more works by female artists. Yeah, there's certainly a long way to go in terms of price parity. 
Another interesting trend that the report identifies is this continued consolidation in the market. In 2021, 74% of the value of imported artworks to the US came from just five countries out of 199, with the UK and France accounting for nearly half. And I wonder whether that's contributing to what Ola Veltus describes in the report as the homogenization of art and art fairs. There's little diversity as this global model of the art world has been exported by the major centres of New York and London and Paris. Paul, in this very concentrated scenario, what place do emerging markets and art scenes have? Well, I think this is an area where over the next few years, we could see a number of barriers coming down. We've seen this in the entertainment industry with film and television and music, where the process of digitization, the introduction of streaming and so on and so forth, this has lowered barriers to entry and it has taken an industry that was actually fairly homogenized, even at a global level. Certainly when I was growing up, pop music was pretty much the same the world over, and you had a very, very homogenized mainstream in most countries. And what's now happened is that that has completely been exploded, and you have anybody who wants to express themselves through music or through television or film has the opportunity to do so. You don't have to go through the white Anglo-Saxon male stereotypical gatekeeper anymore. And the potential for an extraordinary diversity of talent has really emerged. And I think we could conceive of something along those lines continuing to come through in the art space. I'm not talking necessarily about digital art, although that could be part of it, but digitizing access to art, artists being able to display their works of art and attract new interest and attract new markets through posting on Instagram or doing a TikTok about it or whatever it happens to be. I mean, there are enormous opportunities here. I think that there are potential areas where any degree of homogenization is likely to be chipped away at by the fact that we can far more readily experience global culture, including, of course, the culture of emerging markets of sub-Saharan Africa, of Latin America, of Asia, and so forth. This is a culture that now is far more accessible than it has ever been in history. And we discussed earlier these twin drives of deglobalization, which is concerned with economic nationalism, restrictions and sanctions versus localization, which is, to my mind, equally inward looking, but more concerned perhaps with environmental issues and producing bespoke products and supply chain security. I mean, there's an interesting question which you've just touched upon, isn't there, in terms of what happens to art in a more localized context? Amitha, could I ask you, in terms of the galleries you buy from, are they largely local to you or what's the breakdown? Do you buy across the board globally? Do you buy art fairs? Could you give us an idea of your collecting? Sure. I think that it's mostly New York and U.S. focused. We have acquired works through international galleries, but it's actually been because we have a relationship with the artist and the artist has been the one that's kind of helped make that acquisition happen because we don't necessarily have a relationship with some of these galleries based in Berlin or London. So yeah, for us, it's mostly, I'd say New York by and large, and then a few other U.S. cities like Chicago, San Francisco. And that hasn't really changed in recent years. The pandemic hasn't changed your spending habits enormously. The pandemic has definitely changed our collecting habits in a pretty dramatic way, which is surprising looking back on it because it happened very organically. Prior to the pandemic, we would never have really considered buying art off of a PDF without seeing the work in person. But over the last couple of years, we've done that a few times. 
similarly with the online art fairs. I know that that's a little bit of a controversial opinion, but I was one of the few people that actually liked having that as a different channel because I found it just gave a lot of transparency and we were able to view a lot of work and understand pricing for a lot of artists that we were interested in in a very efficient way versus if we were navigating a physical art fair and having to wait our turn to engage a sales director at a booth. So I actually liked that experience. Something else that was very different for us during this time was using social media for collecting. I'm not really a big social media user myself. I like to consume other people's content, but I don't really post a lot. But it was surprising that in the last couple of years, we've started to expand into some more emerging artists. Previously, we were more focused on kind of mid-career established artists. And I've been able to have direct interactions with so many emerging artists through Instagram direct messages, which was a very new thing for us and has actually helped us acquire works by these artists that don't have huge production. So the demand for their work far exceeds the supply. And by creating these relationships through Instagram, it's actually helped us get access to works that we probably would have a more difficult time acquiring. That's really interesting. I know the report mentions that sales on external online and social media platforms accounted for 20% of the total of expenditure and with Instagram accounting for 6% of that. But I am anecdotally hearing from dealers a lot that a lot of their new recruits to their galleries are coming through Instagram, that connections are being made directly. So that's really changing the makeup there and the relationships. Sustainability is another issue which is increasingly on collectors' minds. Whether that's translating into action remains to be seen. According to the report, 28% of collectors cite sustainability and carbon footprint as one of their top 10 concerns, ranking fourth behind regulatory and legal issues. Though the report also says that there were few obvious signs of a pullback in travel and attendance. Paul, can I ask you, is the question of sustainability impacting high net worth collectors' spending habits in any significant way? You mentioned before that the thirst for travel is certainly greater than ever. I think that there is considerable concern about climate change. And about other social issues, we've already talked about diversity, equity and inclusion. These are growing concerns and I think will continue to be a focus for art collectors who obviously tend to be disproportionately well-educated individuals and socially involved. Particularly, for example, with corporate art collections, I think you will see a tendency to to to, to acquire art which reflects either equity, diversity and inclusion or sustainability or, of course, both in the artwork itself. And there is a desire to lobby for change at a higher level. But when it comes down to the decision of do we go over to London or to New York or to Asia to view art or to participate in an art fair or whatever it is, people are not going to have environmental considerations number one there. What you might find, obviously, is things like offsetting, people saying, well, we can justify this trip because we're going to invest in a carbon neutral plan or we're going to plant trees or whatever it is you do to offset. So that, I think, is probably what's going to happen. There is a solve to the conscience that is applied, but the desire to have experiences, I think, has grown significantly in the aftermath of the pandemic. I think that we will scale back a bit. So there was this explosive fanaticism to go on holiday in 2022, which is absolutely remarkable across all different income groups, all major economies, this absolute determination to go away for a vacation. That's not going to carry on at that level. But I think we probably are going to be a more experience-focused society in the future than we have been perhaps in the immediate past. It's a conundrum that still needs solving in the art market. 
If I could ask you both lastly for your predictions, it's a bit unfair perhaps, but Paul, economically speaking, what are your predictions for the rest of the year and going into 2023? Are we facing a slowdown, a slump or a a really severe recession? What's in store? So I have reasonable confidence that we avoid the really, really severe recession. I think that a lot of households have reduced debt and increased savings during the course of the pandemic. And whilst a fair amount of that money has already been spent, there is a larger cushion than is normal. And labour markets remain relatively strong. People have also diversified their income somewhat. People have got side hustles, different things that they do to earn income. So that's also been part of the process, which perhaps gives a a certain sense of security even as the economies slow down. So I think a really severe recession is unlikely. My instinct is that most economies will probably have a slowdown, but it's not what I would characterize as a recession. We may have negative growth, but that's not a characteristic of a recession per se. I don't think people are going to behave as if it's a recession. They may trim back on some unnecessary spending. They may be a little bit more cautious as we go ahead, but I think it's going to be a slowdown that is not too uncomfortable to go through and is not, I hope, too socially disruptive to go through either. Sounds hopeful. Amitha, are you optimistic? Will you keep buying art into 2023 or are you taking a bit more of a cautious approach? We are very optimistic about 2023. And actually, we acquired a second home in Amagansett, New York during the pandemic. So we're really excited about being able to build out a distinct collection that's still comprised of mostly women and artists of color, but focused a bit more on the emerging side versus our current collection in the city, which is more mid-career established artists. So again, like I said at the beginning of this interview, I think we're always going to be intentional. And obviously, with this possibility of this looming recession, we want to be smart about spending. But I think that we're definitely excited to continue to grow our collection in 2023. Amitha, Paul, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.